All right, well, today we are beginning our new summer series, uh, which we have titled Overlooked Books of the Bible. Now, you know, every title is a little bit of a compromise. This one is going to be more strictly true some weeks, uh, as when Pastor Paul talks about Ecclesiastes, for example, uh, than it will other weeks, like this week where I talk about Judges. Uh, Judges is probably not overlooked, but what we're trying to do each week is to address one book of the Bible each week that for some reason or other uh, either has some obstacles to understanding or maybe some obstacles to application, and we're trying to provide enough you know, insight and background so that the next time you read or study that book on your own, you'll be able to do that much more fruitfully. Uh, so that's our goal in the series this summer, and uh, we're excited. It's challenging. Uh, you know, some weeks, as you guys will probably have noticed, we struggle to get through a few verses in a half an hour, uh, and so you can only imagine what it's like trying to get through 26, uh, you know, chapters sometimes. So we'll, we'll do our best, uh, and, you know, somebody will cut me off at some point, so don't worry. Um, all right, some weeks as we do this, it's going to mean a, a deeper dive into the original culture. Some weeks, like today, it's going to mean a broad overview that will help us hopefully frame the book a little bit differently. But what it always is going to mean is paying close attention to what kind of literature that book of the Bible actually is. Uh, There's a website called the Babylon Bee. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, uh, I'm not sure if I should say, you you know, you're welcome or I'm sorry, because once you get on there, you can waste a couple hours. Uh, It's a satirical website. It's a lot like The Onion. uh, And they they put out uh, satire, satire articles uh, relating to politics, current events. But kind of their specialty, their their niche, is uh, Christian culture satire. Uh, Just to give you an example, one of my favorite ones, which I'm not going to remember perfectly, but it was something to the extent that uh, Lutheran wife exasperated that husband keeps nailing grocery lists to the front door. Right? (laughs) So you've got to be a little inside Christianity to, to maybe appreciate that. One, one very recently, when I checked this week, was uh, John the Baptist uninvited from church potlucks after bringing a locust and honey casserole, right? <laughs> so pretty good, pretty good. You can see where he, this is funny. As I also said, though, they, they do dabble in, in current events and politics, and so a couple of years ago, they posted one. You know, not their best work, but kind of funny. said, uh, CNN purchases industrial washing machines to help spin the news. All right? So some people thought this was funny, right? Some people, some people, there's always someone, didn't get the joke, okay? In this case, it was Snopes.com, who, if you're not familiar with them, they're a sort of self-appointed internet fact checker. Uh, This came on their radar, and they strangely uh, took it completely seriously, uh, sincerely, and they proceeded to fact check it, you know? I, I assume that meant some calls to the purchasing department at CNN, I never got to read what they put out, but apparently they issued some sort of rebuttal where they said, Babylon B, you know, peddling false information and lies. You know, CNN says they have never purchased industrial washing machines, and even if they did, they would never put the news in it or, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, the Babylon, for the Babylon B, this was hilarious, of course, but it was also frustrating. Uh, and it's a perfect example of the fact that if you don't know what kind of literature you're dealing with, It's possible to read something and totally understand it, and yet completely miss the point. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about the book of Judges, and the first thing I want to say is that it's important to pay attention to the author's intent in writing the book. Uh, Given the title, which, by the way, we gave the book that title, the author of Judges did not supply it, 
Uh, and given the way it's organized, it's tempting to treat judges as though it's a collection of character studies and historical biographies. But that's not what the author of Judges is doing. Uh, it is first and foremost a narrative that offers a theological and historical explanation for how Israel went from you know, the victorious and unstoppable conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua to, to the divided disaster that they were at the beginning of the monarchy. How they went from a people called and set apart by God to be holy to a people indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. The structure of the book, I think, makes this intention clear. Uh, we have three main parts. Uh, so you have a beginning that gives you the rosy portrait of victorious, faithful Israel as they are at the end of the book of Joshua. And then you have a corresponding conclusion at the end that, that paints a very bleak picture of a divided uh, and conquered, largely, Israel at the end of the book of Judges. And then what you have in the middle is a big section that explains historically and theologically how we got from the beginning to the end. So let's start at the start. Uh, the first chapter of, Jud of Judges, as I said, is exceptionally promising. It follows on the book of Joshua, and so it begins with the end of Joshua's life. Joshua's time as the leader of Israel has been one of great success and victory. Uh, under Joshua's leadership, Israel has entered into the promised land. That's the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, and jo under Joshua's leadership, God has delivered them the land. He goes before them in battle, and, and God gives Israel victory after victory over the Canaanite inhabitants. Uh, Judges 1, 1 through 26 recount story after story of victorious conquest, and all of them are marked conspicuously by obedience to God and cooperation between the tribes. A nice summary is provided in Judges 2, 6 through 8. Uh, it says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to their own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Uh, it's kind of a cap on what is a very promising start, but it's only a start. It's, it's good to remember that the idea behind this, behind God's covenant with Israel, beyond, behind him giving them the promised land, is that God had called them and set them apart to be a holy people. Uh, he chose them and made a covenant with them. Uh, and the idea was that God would be their God. He would write his name on Israel, which means he would identify himself with Israel. And he would guide them, bless them, and protect them uh, so that they could be a city on a hill. God wanted the surrounding nations to look at Israel and to see a glimpse of the relationship that God desired with all people. Israel, for their part, was going to receive instruction from God in how to live according to his will. Uh, they called that the Torah. And, and when they kept it, they would show the world a picture of what humanity was always meant to be, according to its creator. Uh, and this was the land, this was the place where all of that was going to happen. Uh, and as the book of Judges opens, it looks like we, we are on track to realize that plan and that hope. But then, suddenly, the wheels fall off. The, the author of Judges identifies two root causes for the disaster that follows. First, 
After all these stories of victorious conquest, we all of a sudden hit Judges 1.27, and we discover that tribe after tribe, after getting the victory, after getting the upper hand, uh, fails to drive out the former inhabitants as God had commanded them to do. They don't finish the job. Rather than following God's instruction, once the tribes of Israel uh, are victorious enough that they are in charge of their little area there, they look at the Canaanites and they go, yeah, we could drive them out. I mean, I know God told us to, but what a waste. If we kept them around, you know, we, we would have all these people to do the hard labor for us. Maybe, maybe it'd be good to keep some of them around. And so that's what they do. Now, if you're wondering what's wrong with that beyond just simple disobedience, God himself explains. There's this great little section uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where God sends an angel to Israel, and the angel says, essentially, what are you doing? What are you doing? I, I have kept my covenant. I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from Pharaoh. I have delivered you the promised land. Everything is, is going according to plan. I've kept my end. Why is it now you've all of a sudden decided not to keep yours? Why would you do that? And then God effectively tells them, he warns them, that because they have ignored and disobeyed him, what God had warned them about was now going to come to pass. Because they had not driven out the Canaanites, God says, listen, you, you are going to be seduced by their idols and their gods. You'll be led into sin. And what's more, God says, that those idols, those gods, once you worship them, you turn your back on me, those gods are powerless to help you, powerless to protect you. And so God warns them. He says, listen, if you reject me, you're rejecting my, my protection and my help. And that's going to mean defeat and suffering. And in case you're wondering, that's exactly what happens. The second big problem that the author shows us right at the beginning here is that Israel fails to teach the next generation about God and their covenant. Uh, look now, if you would, starting at chapter 2, verse 10. It says, After Joshua dies, all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the consequence of that? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals, and they abandoned their Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among, from among other gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So here we see the two root causes coming together to form a perfect storm. Both, Israel both fails to train up the next generation to know and obey God, and they fail to drive out the Canaanites who worship foreign gods, other gods. And when you put those two things together, the predictable result is that this new generation in Israel gravitates away from Yahweh and toward the gods of the Canaanites, just as God warned. And as a sort of sub-point here, um, we'll also notice that this generation has no godly leader to succeed Joshua. Now, Joshua is not explicitly blamed for this, but it is a symptom of the wider failure of that generation. They do not train up the next generation to follow them, to be obedient as they were obedient. 
And so these three things, the failure to complete the conquest, the failure to teach the next generation, and the lack of leadership in Israel, they all combine to set Israel on this downward course that is the rest of the book. And I think it's important to note that the author expects us to see that. The author wants us to know that what follows, it's simply the consequences, practically and historically, of these three failures. Uh, When I was in high school, one evening I pulled into our church parking lot and my friend pulled in right behind me. As soon as I turned off my car, though, I could immediately hear that something was desperately wrong with her car. And so when she got out, I said, hey, what's going on with your car? It sounds terrible. And she said, yeah, I know. Uh, It happened all of a sudden last week for no reason, just out of the blue. It starts sounding awful, and and it's just driving horribly. And she said, I I just, I can't understand that there was no accident, nothing happened. I don't know what could explain this. What do you think? Now, if you don't know me very well, I want to be clear that then as now, my expertise in car diagnostics extends to exactly one question, which I proceeded to ask her, which was, "Uh, I don't know, uh, when was the last time you changed the oil? And she looked at me and said, change the oil? And I said, oh, yeah, let's check that. So I said, there's usually a sticker on the inside of the the windshield. So we we checked that. And sure enough, she was uh, about 11,000 miles overdue for an oil change. Yep. So I, I, again, no expert, but I said, I think that might be your problem. And as it turns out, it was her problem. And it was also the end of her car. There was no recovering it. Now, that was sad, obviously, for my friend, but I'm guessing by your response that most of you were not surprised to hear that. And the reason is that most of you know that once you decide you're going to stop changing the oil in your car, that story only ends one way, right? And that's with the ruin of your engine. What we have just read in Judges 1 through 2, or referenced, is the national equivalent of deciding to stop changing the oil in your car. You see, the author of Judges has read his Torah, and he knows that sin is inherently self-destructive. He knows that once, once you reject God and turn your back on him, that story only ends one way, with calamity and ruin. And in chapters 3 through 16, which compose the main bulk of the book, That's exactly what happens. Israel, or at least certain tribes at different times, will live through the inevitable consequences of their sin. Uh, This section itself is organized, uh, cleverly I think, in repeating cycles. Uh, And each time a cycle completes, it takes Israel to a lower and a lower point in their national life. Uh, You can picture it as a downward spiral. Uh, and these cycles each have essentially four main components. To see how this works, let's just look quickly at the first cycle. So look at chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim, so that the land had rest for 40 years. 
Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All right, so if you, if you look at that, uh, phase one is verse seven. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Almost always, as is specifically mentioned here, that entails idolatry, which we now know from the introduction is a direct result of their failure to drive out the Canaanites as God had asked them to do. And because they do evil and worship idols and turn their back on God and therefore turn their back on God's protection, we get phase two, which is verse eight, where God allows their enemies to attack harass, and oppress them. Eventually, after years of suffering and oppression, we get phase three. And by the way, we're not told this, but my assumption uh, in, in the fact that it takes them eight years to cry out to God for help is that they spent eight years crying out to other gods for help, and they got nowhere. And after eight years, someone had the bright idea, what about the God of our ancestors? Let's try him. So they cry out to Yahweh for help, and we get phase three, verse nine, where they turn back, they cry out to God for help, and God, over and over and over again, will come to their rescue. Uh, This is usually the longest section, uh, and it's the one that gives the book its name, because during this period, God rescues Israel by raising up leaders that that get called judges. Now, just as a note, uh, they are judges, not in our sense of the word, uh, they're not judicial officials primarily. They're more like chieftains, okay? They're, they're the leaders of the people. Uh, they're typically the ones commanding the troops in battle. Uh, and in every case, the key thing to know about the judges is that we specifically are told that the Lord was with these individuals, that his spirit is upon them. And because of that fact, and that fact alone, they are able to deliver Israel and usher in phase four, which is a period of peace and prosperity. But then, as you'll notice, we inevitably read after a certain period of time, the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Verbatim, it's the author's little cue that the cycle has ended and a new cycle is starting all over again. Uh, Now, if you were to go through and count, you'll find that this cycle repeats 12 times. Now, they don't all get the full literary treatment. I assume the author liked 12 because there's 12 tribes. Um, But 12 times explicitly we're told the cycle repeats. All right, so that after that, we get to the end of the downward spiral. That brings us to the end of the book. And, And where does all this downward momentum take us? Well, I think you can track the trajectory most clearly by looking at the character of the judges. Uh, They are a reflection of the wider group that they live in. Uh, The first few, from Othniel, who we just looked at through Deborah, seem to be good people, wise leaders. Uh, But then we get to Gideon, and Gideon is clearly presented as a step down. Uh, He is cowardly, and he repeatedly puts God to the test. At the end of his life, he even reverts back to idolatry. By the time we get to the end of these cycles, and we get to Jephthah and Samson, God is now working through people who clearly have no real understanding of who God is or of his law, and they have little respect for either. Uh, I think it's intentional that when you get to those two, especially, that you will see by comparison that they could not be less like Joshua from the beginning. By the last few chapters, the picture painted clearly and poignantly is that the people of God 
who had all this promise. They were called, they were set apart to be holy. They are now no different. They are indistinguishable from the Canaanites that they live among. Where Israel started the book, holy and set apart, victorious and united under godly leadership, they end it weak, leaderless, and an open civil war, tribe against tribe. By the end, it's no longer just the the neighboring Canaanite peoples that are attacking Israel. The tribes internally are now attacking each other. It's a picture of rock bottom. Look at how the author concludes the book. It's the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 26. He concludes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that sounds bleak, and it's meant to. Uh, But, just as a note, I can't resist. I think also uh, there's meant to be a little note of hope, because the author knows what's coming next. You know, if you just turn over a page in your Bible, if you just peek ahead, you'll see the book of Ruth. Now, the author says... Each person did what was right in their own eyes, that there was no king in Israel. And I think the implication is that maybe, just maybe, if Israel got the right leader, the right king, a godly king, that maybe Israel could once again be united in faithfulness to Yahweh. And Ruth, the next, very next book, just happens to be, of course, the notable ancestor of King David. So things are bad, but there's a little hope. All right, so what can we learn from such a bleak book written so long ago, uh, such a different time, different context? Well, the first thing we should ask ourselves, we should always ask ourselves, is what does this book reveal about God? Although we sometimes forget, that is always the primary purpose of Scripture, and Judges is no exception. Again, despite the title of the book, uh, it is not about the judges, primarily, but God. And again, I know it's tempting, uh, given the focus on the judges and the cyclical structure, to focus on the judges, or worse, to to put judges on pedestals. But to do this is to miss the point. The clear, dominant, endlessly repeated theme of judges is the great faithfulness of the God of Israel. If you just sat down and read this book straight through, you'd practically be knocked over. Because God is presented as faithful beyond all expectation, beyond even, maybe, all reason. The cyclical structure of Judges is designed to drive this home to the reader and hearer. Over and over, Israel breaks her covenant with God. Over and over, this leads to calamity. Over and over, she cries out to help for help. And again, and again, and again, God comes to the rescue. And as the reader, what we know is that we know that Israel does not deserve the rescue. They don't deserve it the first time around. They are experiencing the consequences of their own sin. And yet, so the first time God comes to the rescue, it's already mercy. It's already a great demonstration of faithfulness, despite Israel's unfaithfulness. We should already be amazed by God's faithfulness. And then, imagine how you feel when you read about how God does that, not once, not twice, but 11 more times, just one after the other after the other. Now, it goes without saying that we live in very different times, but we all still are going to face our own struggles and failures. 
We're going to walk through our own periods of anxiety and fear. Some of you might be in the middle of such a time right now, crying out to God for help or for healing or for relief. What judges would say to you is that your God, the God we worship and pray to today, is the same God, and he has not changed. His faithfulness is still great. It still extends beyond all reason and all expectation. Wherever you are right now, your God, our God, can be trusted because he has proven his faithfulness over and over again. The second big takeaway from this book, I think, is that God works powerfully even through imperfect people. I've mentioned already, the the judges are a decidedly mixed lot. Uh, Some, especially early on, are good and wise leaders, and God uses them to do great things. Uh, Others, uh, however, are deeply flawed people, foolish, cowardly, and sinful. Some of them had great strength and ability. Others appear to be just ordinary people. What's striking about the book of Judges is that God works powerfully through each and every one of these different kinds of people to accomplish his will and his purpose. A couple of years ago uh, at the Super Bowl, uh, the NFL set up this, they called it, I think, like uh, the fan experience or something. They had stuff going on all weekend. Uh, and one of the things they set up was a little, a little stretch of turf where you could get timed running the 40-yard dash. Now, if you're not familiar with the NFL, they're obsessed with the 40-yard dash time. I don't know why. It's just a metric they decided was important. And no, their field's not 40 yards. It's 100. But, you know, that's what they landed on, 40 yards. That's important. And because of that, prospective players spend an incredible amount of time focused on running the fastest 40-yard dash time possible. They train specifically for it. Uh, When they run it, they wear tight spandex clothes. They wear cleats. They're doing everything they can to shave even a hundredth of a second off of there because, ridiculous as it sounds, that can mean uh, millions more dollars in salary over the course of their careers. Uh, So the idea with this fan experience was it'd be fun. You know, kids, other fans can show up. They can run a 40-yard dash, and they can compare their time to their favorite NFL players and See how fast all these guys are. Well, this Super Bowl, uh, Olympic sprinter Usain Bolt happened to be in the house. He was there to to take in the Super Bowl. And somebody had the great idea. They said, oh, we've got to get some tape of Usain Bolt running the 40. Uh, Now, here's the thing, all right? He's not in the middle of track season. He's resting. He's recovering. He's not in shape. Well, he's not in, like, Olympic shape. Uh, he's wearing street clothes. He's got on just casual flat shoes for running on grass. And, but they said, hey, you, you know, it'd be fun. I think people would love it. You're saying, would you just do it? Would you humor us? Would you just run a 40? He says, okay, fine. You know, no warm-up, really, no stretching, no preparation. He gets up there, stands at the start line, runs what looks for him to be a pretty casual 40-yard dash, and proceeded to tie the fastest time ever run by any NFL player in the history of the NFL. Now, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure nobody looked at that, no prospective players looked at that and went, that's what I've been doing wrong. I should wear street clothes to run it, (laughs) right? Nobody looked at that and thought, ah, there's my problem. I should train less. I shouldn't stretch or warm up. I should just step up there and go. The point, which everyone got, 
was that somebody who could run that fast, even in those clothes, even in those shoes, even without warming up, must be unbelievably fast. In the same way, what I want to say to you this morning is that no one should read Judges and walk away going, wow, Samson must have been a really strong dude. Or man, that that Gideon, he must have really known battle tactics. To do that is the equivalent of watching Usain Bolt run the 40 and think, I should do it in street clothes. It's not the clothes that made Usain Bolt fast. The message of Judges is that all deliverance comes from God, and that our God is able to do incredible things, even with flawed vessels. I love, early in the book of Judges, when God singles out Gideon to be the new deliverer of Israel. Uh, He sends an angel to Gideon, and Gideon's knee-jerk response is, ah, I think you got the wrong guy. You must be at the wrong address. Now, why would he say that? Well, as Gideon explains to the angel, he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not like a super strong guy, okay, I'm not, no one regards me as clever, I'm just, I'm just an unimportant guy from an unimportant family. And what does the angel say to Gabriel? Does he go, no, 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 you've got hidden depths of genius and wisdom that you don't even know about. That's why God picked you. Nope. I mean, if he's fishing for compliments, it does not go well. What the angel says to Gideon, I mean, I, I love to imagine the look on the, on the angel's face, The angel looks at Gideon and says, what does any of that have to do with anything? I just told you that the Lord, the God of the universe, will be with you. What possible difference could your shortcomings make? We're all tempted, I think, to make projections about what we can and cannot do for the kingdom. And we're tempted to draw those conclusions based on our own evaluation of ourselves or worse, our evaluation of others. Uh, We look at what we perceive to be our talents, our skills, and our strengths, or uh, we look at our flaws and our weaknesses and our shortcomings, and we think somehow that that's going to tell us something crucial about how God can or could use us. But the message of Judges is that all of those things, all of them, are far less important than a simple willingness to serve. And the reason that is true is the same today as it was for Gideon. And it's because the Lord, the God of all creation, the God who holds everything in his hands, is with you. If that's true, and by the way, it is true, you have the Holy Spirit, you know it in a way Gideon couldn't have known it. If that's true, and it is, then the rest is unimportant by comparison The message of Judges is that our God is faithful and he works powerfully even through imperfect people. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful reminder of your great faithfulness. And Lord, I have to admit uh, that as a human being, I'm startled, I'm struck by the way you continue to be faithful over and over. Uh, It's something I I just have a difficult time comprehending. But I I thank you because I think that's why you gave us the book of Judges, so that we could know something critical about you, that this is who you are. 
You are a supremely faithful God. You are a God who is faithful even in the face of unfaithfulness on the part of your people. God, I pray that that would be an encouragement to us, a powerful encouragement this morning, that we would know as we go through our own trials and failures that, that even though we fall short, you are more than faithful. I thank you, Lord, too, for the reminder uh, as we look at our, our world and we, we look at your kingdom. Uh, and Lord, sometimes we struggle to understand why you've chosen to work through human beings, through your church. But Lord, I think the simple answer is that that is simply who you are. You delight to work through people. And you are more than capable of doing powerful things through imperfect vessels. God, I pray that that would inspire us and encourage us, that it would drive us to be willing and available for the ways uh, in which you would use us. In your name we pray, amen.